Welcome to The Tanya Acker Show. I'm Tanya Acker. Today is a very special day on The Tanya Acker Show because I am lucky enough to bring to you a genuine icon. Welcome to The Tanya Acker Show, Mr. Hal Williams, star of screen and television uh, activist. Thank you for being here, sir. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm a pleasure to be here with you. So your credits uh, are numerous. Uh, you've been in movies, Private Benjamin, The Rookie. You've been on TV. I think your debut was Sanford and Son. Uh, Stanford and yeah, Son. We'll talk that about that. That was the big break, as they say, with the overnight sensation. Yeah. That was the big break. But I want to first talk about a show that um, had a real impact on me growing up, uh, 227. This is a show about a black family. It launched, I think, the year after the Cosby show, you know, which told the story that a lot of people hadn't seen. You know, black folks were doctors and lawyers and, uh, you know, had intact families. But your family in 227 felt a little bit more like mine. Uh, working class folks and a still happy, intact family that dealt with uh, problems in the way that uh, healthy families do. Tell us why 227 was so important. Right. Well, um, Marla's idea, we did 227 as a play in her theater, play written by Christine Houston. And then um, Scoey Mitchell, of all people, came to see the play. One night he brought Norman Lear and uh, the head of... uh, Brandon Tartikoff, the head of NBC TV. And at the end of the show, they unanimously said, this has to be a series. And Marla's concept of it, she wanted, she didn't want to be a struggling mother in the ghetto and all of that. And so uh, she insisted on having a well-rounded family, hardworking husband, uh, working class people, as you pointed out, guys struggling in DC, trying to get government contracts to make his little sub subcontract business move right along. And that's the, that's what we took off. And that's what we uh, wanted to achieve in bringing it to uh, to the general public and the audience. Uh, and it also we wanted it to be not a black show, but a family show, crossover for everything, which we proved. We went to Washington D.C., which was where two two seven was supposed to take place. We spent seven days there researching, going to Adams Morgan area where regular folks were, lived. Went up on their porches, talked to them, got their stories and everything. And uh, like I said, the rest is history. We came back and we started working on our show and keeping the values that we had as a regular, hardworking, solid family. Uh, the Marla that you mentioned, of course, is Marla Gibbs, yeah. uh, also a TV legend uh, who really came to prominence as uh, the housekeeper in the Jeffersons, another yes. show uh, that uh, I, I grew up on and that was a big part of our TV watching rituals. You know, so 227 really followed in the line of shows that were presenting to America a different aspect of Black life, right. frankly. Uh, what did you watch growing up? I mean, let's just try to give people a sense of what TV was like before uh, 227 and the Cosby Show and all of these shows that now a lot of people take for granted. Uh, tell us what you watched when you were growing up. Mostly now. growing up outside of sports, you watch white family shows like Leave it to Beaver and shows like that, The Fonz on Happy Days and things like that. 
that's that was that was offered. That's what was offered because there weren't that many black uh, performers in television. You know, the the uh, the old adage was behind the scenes that white audiences you had to be singing and dancing, and white audiences weren't going to watch anything on television. They would change the channel. So that's why I grew up with those kind of shows and game shows and stuff and westerns, but they were all white performers. I remember one time on The Rifleman, they had, uh, it was a big thing to have Lou Rawls on there. And on another Western show, it was a big thing to have uh, Sammy Davis Jr. on there uh, as a gunfighter and stuff, just sporadic things like that. You know, when you think about, like when I think about the television uh, that I watched growing up as a kid, when we saw African-American people, they were really, um, they were usually, I won't say always, usually really poorly off, uh, on the wrong side of the law in some right. kind of desperate situation or a sidekick. Uh, right. And that's why I think that what you did was so revolutionary. When you all were making 227, did you have a sense of how important it was at the time? Of course. but We, we, we knew uh, from a, the, the year before we went to the affiliates, affiliates banquet in Catalina Island, and they presented the Cosby Show. And that was the catalyst that enabled us to come behind them and do the kind of show that we wanted to do and show the contrast. As you just pointed out earlier, a very prominent family and a regular blue collar family, you know, working and everything. And we realized how important it was to get rid of some of the stereotypical situations and have us in on in that capacity. I am uh, a classic movie lover. And I'm uh, also a fan of old TV shows. And it's so interesting, Hal, I wonder your thoughts about this. You know, there are some old movies that I just can't get through. Um, right. Gone, Gone with the Wind is one of them. Right. Uh, and, and there's such a, you know, I, when I think about that movie, I have such conflicting feelings because I want to and do uh, honor Hattie McDaniel, first African-American to Correct. be uh, an Oscar nominee. Um, but it's also important to remember that she couldn't sit with the rest of the cast at right, the ceremony. Right, that's right, uh, that's right. Tell me, have you, what are your gone with the wind thoughts? Uh, and I know if I attract some hate from Team Scarlett O'Hara, then so be it. But I, I, I truly can't get through that film. Uh, well, I think. What's, what are your thoughts? For the black audience at the time, we were, we were more concerned that some black people were on the screen. Because uh, except for the, the earlier years, like when I was a kid and you, like you were growing up, Herb Jeffries, the black singing cowboy, uh, was the only time you saw a prominent black person in a positive role. And then Oscar Micheaux did a bunch of films that tried to show us outside of slavery, outside of being maids and butlers and all that kind of stuff. And it followed me through my ambition to one day hopefully achieve what at the time in the 40s in World War II um, prominence as a professional actor. Uh, it was a dream I had, but never thought it would come true, you know. So, uh, and as things decided to change after World War II, then the networks under pressure, because they were public airways and everything, kind of gave in a little bit and maybe started having shows with one of us in them and stuff like that. But that was all that was offered before shows like Gone with the Wind and things like that. That's the only thing we can see uh and see ourselves and not necessarily uh in the mythical uh stereotypical sense but see uh, some semblances of us as human beings 
you know, not chattels, not servants, not uh, adhering and working to somebody else's concept of what we ought to be. And there was sometimes a real backlash against uh, Black performers yes. that wanted to present in that aspect. I mean, for instance, wasn't uh, Lena Horne was boycotted in Southern theaters because she didn't present as a maid. She did roles where she was very, you know, sexy, like she was a sex symbol. And there was a lot of backlash uh, when Black folks tried to show themselves in a different aspect. What was that like? I mean, you know, you see somebody trying to do something different and all of a sudden they're getting boycotted. You know, speaking of cancel culture, uh, they were getting canceled. Uh, how did you stick with it and really want to be in this, you know, d decide that you were going to make space for yourself in well, this industry? We, we, we knew that that's the way she was going to be perceived and, and received and not respected, but only respected as an entertainer still not as a human being, still some of the places they wanted to perform in, she couldn't perform and things like that. So uh, uh, at the time, and again, she was a heroine. She was breaking the color line, so to speak, in certain areas, but not universally, you know. And, and when they cast her and stuff, it was also as she's the only one, you know, things like that. So talk to us about what is going through your head as a young man. You're from Ohio. Uh, you're not seeing anybody who <laughs> really looks like you uh, doing the work that you want to do, or at least not in the way that you want to do it. What inspires you and gives you the faith and confidence to take the leap? Uh, probably my personal life, which was in a disarray in the early 60s. I got divorced. I've had custody of my three kids. And I looked around, I had been working for the government, and the youth commission, juvenile court, and all of that, battered and abused children. I just wasn't happy. And I started to think about what could I do that I really wanted to do, and it was acting. And the Cosby show was on with I Spy, with he and uh, Robert Cole. And I saw that, and then I saw a couple of other things. And when Jim Brown retired from the NFL and got cast in a couple of movies, I said, you know what? Uh, I think the climate has a chance. It's a slim chance of changing. And if so, I want to be there. So I talked to my parents who thought I had lost my mind. Said, boy, you got these three kids and all this stuff. What are you talking about going to be? You got a stable job. People respect you. You're wearing a shirt and tie and carrying a briefcase and all that stuff. But that didn't mean anything to me. So I said, you know, I'm going to give it a shot. And my parents agreed to keep my kids till I got to California. And uh, so... I came out the year before in 67 and took some exams because I got this responsibility of a family and I'm the head of single head of household. And then in 68, I came on out, scared to death, drove out in 48 hours, uh, 72 hours to Los Angeles and got set up. And uh, I have been told by a friend of mine whose sister was in the movies, uh, Mady Ruth Norman, which been the Normans in a lot of independent black films way back in the 40s, I went to see his sister. And she told me the first thing you do is find a theater group to join. And then go by the Hollywood Reporter every Friday. They have casting notices in there for plays. And look at that and see what you can find to audition for. And that's what I did. And gradually through theater, I started my career doing commercials and things like that and working my way up. And then the industry was slowly starting to change. And that's when Norman came up with All in the Family. And after that, I just about did every uh, 
Norman's, uh, of his series, I did almost every show that he had made, guest starred and stuff. And Sanford was my big break. Norman Lear, who, of course, changed television with a slew right. of shows that offered, I think, a different view of American life. Um, I, what was he like? Tell us about working with Norman Lear. I mean, that's a, a real giant in the industry. Well, he was a giant, but I never, I never even met Mr. Lear until way after the sales had been, become a hit. I worked with his partners in TNT, Bud York and and Aaron and different people like that. And I was, uh, their casting director, Jane Murray, really took to me, liked me. So every time they came up with a guest role that she thought I fit, she called me and they cast me and I did the show. Um, but uh, he, he had the vision of what the shows could be. And later on, I wrote a, read a couple of his books. He, in the Jewish culture, came up somewhere the way I did, you know, working class Jewish family and stuff like that. So he equated that to some respect with possibly the black experience, but he never, he never tried to intimate that he was a, an authority on the black experience. You know, it's interesting when you think about how he brought to the small screen all of these different aspects of American life. You think about somebody like Archie Bunker, uh, where he the point of All in the Family was to uh, sort of, you know, satirize uh, that personality. But Archie Bunker, the bigot, <laughs> became a hero right. to a lot of people. It was like folks didn't quite get it. Uh, what do you think about the influence of television on culture, especially sometimes when, you know, the the, the producer, the person creating a project may have one intention and an audience takes it in an entirely different direction. What, what do you think about where media is going these days? Well, I think, uh, I can't believe how fortunate uh, we have become in production with the, with the advent of shows like Netflix, Hulu, and uh, things like that, uh, Roku, and the fact that young people, this generation now does not realize how fortunate they are that they have control, they can make deals. And it's because of the advent of the cable industry, whereas before when I was coming through, there was only ABC, CBS, and NBC. With the advent of the cable situation, they primarily have to, a uh, thousand time slots, they have to fill, you know, so they're more open to us. Let's talk about it. They call it show business. And from a business aspect, they have to do their research and do their logistical studies to figure out what they think the audience will accept and what the audience will uh, like. Do you think that uh, the business is moving in the right direction since there are so many people now who have control and access to platforms? You know, everything's sort of, it's become all democratized. There aren't as many gatekeepers. Do you think that's a good thing? Because the flip side of that is that anybody can get on anywhere and say anything, true or not, and kind of give themselves uh, the look, if they give themselves the look and feel of being true, then people will accept it, even if it's not. Well, uh, what do you think about all of these different voices and their- It's like, uh, it's like spoon feeding a baby. <laughs> uh, you know, they, they, the freedom of speech thing has been, is totally out of control. With social media on the scene, it's just crazy now. People can do and say anything they want and they can influence 
the mass media by people who are dedicated to watching the little tube every day. You give them a little more each day, a little more each day. They start to really believe stuff that under ordinary conditions without social media, they would use their own God-given intelligence to think for themselves and not be influenced or led by some kind of herd influence. So you've been in this business for about, uh, what, five decades? Just over 50 years. In those 52 years, uh, if you had to name one experience that really shaped you, you know, something that made you feel like, you know what, I am really doing the right thing with my life. I really feel good about this. Uh, is there one thing, is there one thing that you could pull out as having been uh, really instrumental and in keeping you on this path? Well, uh, really, my faith, my faith, number one, my faith in God. How else would a guy strap three kids to his back and go somewhere he had never been before and didn't know anybody and think he was going to make a successful career out of being an actor? But I was fortunate in a couple of situations where my mentors uh, let me know I was on the right track. And my mentors and the producers I worked with respected me as a black man and a black individual enough to learn from me rather than guess at the black experience in black culture. And when I worked with a, a director, uh, Jerry Thorpe, and when I worked with Earl Hamner, who was the producing director of The Waltons, now I know that many black people didn't watch The Waltons, but I was <laughs> on there with Lynn Hamilton for five years playing husband and wife. And you saw us in an entirely different aspect of how we fit in with a predominantly white cast week after week after week. So that's the impression it made on me. Also, it gave me a voice to have a, a platform of sorts to let people know, even though I couldn't control the situation, that I let them know. That's why when you mentioned I'm somewhat of an activist, let them know that I know what you're doing. I know what you want to portray. You're not interested in the truth but you just want to make money off of us that uh, I can't change that. I don't have the power to change that, but I can through quality work, keep working and making positive images appear that we as a people will be proud of. Because when I go to church on Sunday, those little old ladies sitting in front of me will question me, say, how come you let that boy say so-and-so to you in the film? And I'm, I'm sitting there guessing, how am I going to get out of this? Were there, speaking of that, were there often situations where you turned down a role that was lucrative or might have, you know, really advanced your career in some way just because you were like, I don't like the look, I don't like the representation, I am not presenting this on camera. Um, how often has, has that happened to you? Oh, many times, but I made a promise to myself that it wasn't about the career moves and the money, really. Certain games you got to play in Hollywood, and I refuse to play them. I still like the image I see in the mo in the mirror in the morning when I when I wake up. I, I hardly have ever made a concession just to advance my career. Matter of fact, I put myself in 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 deep trouble two or three times by questioning moves producers wanted to make, questioning why they didn't want me to say certain things. And I had like three terrible incidents where the producer insisted on me doing something a certain way. And I only absolutely refused one time because this new producer did not know anything about our culture, but the network had brought him in to sort of put the, put the black cast in control because they were out of control. 
So I won't name names, but, you know, um, a guy told me one time, I did the Sinbad show, and in the Sinbad show, I played Sinbad's father. I wore a stocking cap all the time. The first time this new producer came in from Wyoming and saw me with the stocking cap on, I got a note from the booth upstairs in the middle of the taping to take it off. Then I said, why? So what the producer wants you to take it off. I said, why? He said, well, he didn't want that do-rag on your head. I said, it's not a do-rag. And if he doesn't know the difference between a do-rag and a stocking cap, he should not be our producer. Well, you know that got me in big trouble. But out of respect to Sinbad, I took it off. That's the only reason. So uh, you were saying you took the stocking cap off because yeah. you wanted, out of respect to Sinbad, even though you were a bit annoyed that this person was sort of making cultural assumptions without a good basis. And when we had our meeting and I tried to explain, the, the, the meeting made, became even more heated because I was strictly going to give him an education and give him, put my point across. And he didn't, he didn't want to hear anything I had to say. He wanted me to know that he was in control. So at that point, I didn't care whether they fired me. I said, if you fire me from this show, I'll go home and work in my garden and you still have to pay me. And they didn't want to hear that, you know. So uh, it worked out for a while and then they got rid of him. But by the time they got rid of him, the, that excellent show was about to go off the air, you know. And I've had several incidents, and I guess all, all of us have, where another persuasion would try to tell us how to be us. That's <laughs> insulting. That's, ins that's extremely insulting. And I've even said things to producers that say, but Hal is funny. And I've said to them, and I, I know they, they turn red and everything, I said, say, would it be funny if it was Jewish? And, you know, that <laughs> you don't do that. So, like I said, there are many games I could have played and my, my, my star would have gone to high heights. I've been able to make a comfortable living. That's fine. When you say uh, other people want to tell us how to be us, I, I think what you're referring to, just so, pe so people are really clear, there are times when non-Black folks decide that Black people have a certain affect um, and speak in a certain way, and you know they kind of caricaturize us, and they want us to then be caricatures uh, right. of ourselves. Um, and I think it, it is important to push back against that. But you've seen a lot. I mean, you, uh, by the way, I'm glad that when you look in the mirror, you like what you see, because the rest of us do too. <laughs> you look great, sir. Um, but you've seen not just this industry, but this country. You've seen the world change yes. um, over the span of uh, these, uh, these decades. Um, you talked about your experiences as a young black man. I think right now is a time where uh, young African-American people and a lot of young people generally um, are feeling as alienated uh, as I've ever seen, frankly, um, even though I don't think the world was as advanced in some ways. Uh, you know, when I was young, I feel like I was a bit more optimistic. You know, there, were, yeah. there was more optimism in the air than there is right now. What's your advice to young people and also specifically to young black men um, who are once again in a situation where they're often seen, often being seen as the villain, the villain in life, uh, you know, forget about what's happening on the big screen where there's a sense of not really being a part of the culture and the American community and being outsiders. Uh, what do you say to young people who find themselves in that situation? Well, you know, I would say 
10, 15 years ago when I would talk about the status of our culture, the status of especially black men and how we are endangered species. We're always perceived as a young or, or older angry black man. And much more receptive to black females than they are to black males. Because when we show up, they perceive us as being a threat. You know, and that's the way that goes. And that's because of the people, the, the non-black people who are presenting these problems and we are confronted by being in the middle of their ideas about who we are, what we are, their lack of knowledge about our creativity. You can take, whether it's turning baseball caps around or certain kind of music or dances like the electric slide, that our young people, when I go around to colleges and, and high schools and they talk to them and say, don't let anybody think you're not worth anything. I said, because people don't steal things that have no value. I said, and in this country, and especially in the entertainment industry, black influence is more prominent than any other influence in the entertainment industry. But you have to be as an individual and realize uh, certain behavior, whether you're walking away from somebody, running away from them, or running toward them, can get you killed. So there's certain behavior, you have to become a better actor than I am in certain situations, because if you don't, you could, you could lose your life. You know, simply because uh, a guy told me one time, he said, you know, one person uh, will kill you because he's scared of you and the other person won't kill you as quickly just because he's mad. You know, it's that kind of, you have to think about situations from the time if you are driving while black through Beverly Hills or on Rodeo driving somewhere in a Mercedes and they pull you over for no reason other than you were driving that car. So those kind of things. I try to talk to them and make them aware of just how we are perceived, especially males, especially males, how we are perceived and what, what danger there is in our behavior when we have a confrontation. You can't let it get out of control and be controversial and because of your attitude or your belligerence, no matter what you're feeling inside, you have to suppress that and control it or you won't live. And that's, that's, that's really incredible to have to live that way every day. How do you also, um, and I think that this is a real, uh, I think it's an obligation of those of us who have had some degree of uh, success in the world to also communicate even in the midst of, you know, being in that defensive position where you got to watch your back and not run away and comply, right. <laughs> um, other folks can celebrate not complying, um, uh, you know, storming the Capitol or whether it's ripping yeah. off people's masks and not getting vaccinated. They celebrate not com not complying. Um, uh, black folks tell their kids, you must comply or you may right. not live. But the flip side of that, Hal, is don't you think we also have to remind these young people that the table is a table that their fathers and mothers and that their ancestors also built? And we've got to show our kids that it's time for them to comfortably take their seat at that table. I mean, people have fought and bled and died to build that table and make sure that it accommodates all of us. How do we do a better job of communicating to our kids that, uh, you know, it's not just about making sure that you stay alive because that's important because nothing else is going to happen. But you also 
have to remember that you have a seat at the table. You belong in the room. And if you're not there, go in and sit down at the table and take your place. How do we do a better job instilling that confidence when there's so much, you know, when there's so many messages attacking young people today? We as a people have to go back to, and I hate to say this, somewhat of the times in the early 40s and 50s where we were still had a strong family presence. Strong family presence, a strong religious presence, and there's, there's strength in numbers. Uh, I was appalled when I learned uh, a couple of years ago that in, just say like in junior high school, they don't teach civics anywhere anymore. Mm. People don't know how the government is supposed to work. You know, they don't know. They don't know they have a place at the table. They don't know that collectively they can get a lot of things done collectively that they will never get done in a singular fashion. And I pre I, I, I'm pressing that right now on the voter rights thing and everything. And, and the fact that the politicians that you hire when you vote them, and that's what you're supposed to do, don't give a tinker's damn about your agenda once they achieve their goal is to get the position. Then when they go to D.C. or wherever the world center is to get, achieve change at the table, uh, they have no power to to advance because the person they sent to represent them, we said, paint the door anything but red. The person went to D.C. and painted all the doors red. You know, so you have to gather your, realize what your strengths are, gather them collectively. And another thing is, I believe in being uh, somewhat covert about doing things. Don't uh, make a, me the head or make Tanya the head. Get the damn thing done. Excuse my friend. Get it done. They can't figure out who the head was because if you cut off the head, the body will die. But get the movement going. Get the power and strength and enthusiasm and increase your knowledge about what it is you really want to happen. Establish the goal. Get together and fashion out a plan to make that happen or at least attempt to make it happen. Amen to all of that. Uh are you hopeful? Are you hopeful about the future? Tanya, to tell you the truth, and I ain't said that too much out loud, I'm terrified of what's going on now. Because if we, on the poverty side, don't gather ourselves together and resist the changes that are being implemented or attempted these days, there's a false belief in that if, if we're the targets, brown people, black people, everything, the people that are non-color, will be okay. They haven't realized that it's going to be a great many of us, regardless of color, that are going to suffer in what's starting to be created right today, right this morning, especially heading toward the midterm elections next year. It's going to be a very volatile period if people don't wake up today. And when you talk about the things that are being done, um, I know about some of your work on this. Uh, you are referring to efforts to make it harder for people to vote. Voter suppression, um, yeah. I, I'm terrified about that too, candidly, and I'm glad you brought it up because it's only something, we are only going to maintain control over this democracy and we will only right. remain a democracy if we fight for it. Uh, it's, not, it's not free or easy or cheap. 
Mr. Hal Williams, it has really been an honor and a privilege for me to have you here. Um, I, I will say that when I was sitting at home, middle school, watching Lester come home from work and thinking <laughs> about my dad coming home from the post office, yeah. uh, it is really, I just, um, you know, I, I have a little bit of a chill. So you're an icon. You really, you stood for something then. You stand for something now. You are an important figure and a voice uh, not just in the black community, but the, in the American community. So thank, thank you. you, sir. And, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me and, and continued success with your show. It's, it's greatly needed. This, this show is greatly needed. And I praise you for bringing it about, creating it. Thank you, sir. Thanks. Blessing. Be well. The Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me, Darkoya Connor and Sam Fragoso are our producers. Rich Marchuka is our editor. Cole Mitchell is our composer. Our production assistant is Sydney Freeman. Our graphic designer is Greta Lalike. Audrey Ruiz is our social media manager. And our web developer is Eric Valentine. If you like us, and I hope you do, please subscribe, please leave five stars, and please come back. Thanks so much for being here.